Psalm 22 is our text for this morning. If you have uh, a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to that passage. From one standpoint, I believe this is uh, one of the most remarkable psalms in the Psalter. Because it uh, predicts in minute detail... Uh, various events and aspects of the hours that our Lord hung upon the cross and even touches his resurrection. Uh, Here, a thousand years before our Lord went to the cross, David, whom the New Testament writers describe as a prophet, foresaw what would happen on that, uh, that terrible day. Not only the things that happened to Jesus, but uh, even predicted the words, some of the words that he would utter from the cross and some of the words that would be spoken by people at the foot of the cross, things that it would be impossible to to contrive. The the statistical probability that uh, these things would happen simply by chance is uh, virtually nil. David was a prophet. He foresaw the future. You can imagine, if you will, a document that uh, was discovered dating from uh, 1094 uh, A.D. That was the uh, beginning of the medieval period. Uh, William the Conqueror was the king of England. The Crusades were just uh, being launched. And imagine a document written during that that time when people were uh, fighting with swords and and uh, uh, riding on horses uh, uh, engaged in a kind of in a, in a feudal setup in in Europe uh, imagine a, a, a piece of literature coming from that from that period that would describe the death of an innocent man living in our period uh, and a form of execution with which people in the medieval period were not at all familiar, and reporting not only what was done, but what was said by the person who was, who was being executed and those that were observing the, the execution. That's the wonderment of this, uh, of this psalm. Now, I want to introduce you to uh, just a, a little bit of Old Testament theology, just, just a wee bit. There, there are three ways to read the Psalms, and I hope you're learning to read them in, in, in all three of these ways. One is to put the words of the Psalms into David's mouth. He was the author of almost half of the Psalms, and uh, it's legitimate to give them that histori- to see them with that historical perspective. This is David speaking, and as I pointed out, uh, the the narrative sections of First and Second Samuel tell us about the facts of David's life, but the Psalms tell us what he was feeling at that time. They give us insight into his emotions. Now, that's one way to read the Psalms, read them as David spoke them. The second way is to read them for ourselves, to put these, uh, these songs into our mouths as a way of expressing our emotions. Sometimes it's hard for us to get in touch with how we feel we're melancholy and moody and gloomy or discouraged and 
we read the Psalms and we can adequately express how we're, how we're feeling during those times. That's the second way to read the Psalms. But the third way, which you may not be uh, as aware of, is to put these Psalms in our Lord's mouth, in Jesus' mouth. Because that's what the New Testament writers do over and over again. They'll introduce a section from the Psalms by uh, a formula stipulating that it's the Lord himself who is saying these things. Jesus said, and then uh, a quotation from the Psalms will follow. So that in reading the Psalms and putting them into our Lord's mouth, we understand something of his thoughts and his emotions. And we know that our Lord was a human being. But uh, uh, we don't always uh, realize that he was fully a human being. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And that's mystery to us. Because in, in, in our world, two things can't be one and one thing can't be two at one and the same time. But uh, it is true that our Lord was both fully human, every, every bit as human as you and I are. But he was also fully divine. He was God incarnate. Now, in his humanity, he not only felt physical pain, he felt emotional pain. He struggled with discouragement, depression at times, and frustration Feelings of abandonment and, and fear. He never gave way to sin, but he fully felt the human emotions that you and I feel, the despair that we feel at times, the, the uh, gloom and melancholy, as well as the elation and joy of human existence. And by reading these Psalms, we come into contact with an element of our Lord's personality that's largely overlooked. Now, what this psalm is that we're looking at this morning is an expression of our Lord's feelings while he was hanging on the cross. Now, we know the facts of the cross, and we can understand something of the torment of those uh, six hours or so that he hung uh, upon the cross. But uh, we may not be uh, as aware of the intensity of the emotions that, uh, that accompanied that event. Now, if we read this psalm, and put this psalm in our Lord's mind and in his words. The impact of that experience uh, is, much, is much greater. Now I'd like to begin by reading uh, uh, verse 1. This is the so-called uh, cry of dereliction, of uh, disorientation. Our Lord begins to sense the absence of a familiar presence. The Gospel writers tell us that our Lord was crucified about 9 o'clock in the morning. For the first three hours that he hung on the cross, the sun shone brightly. It was broad daylight. But at 12 o'clock, a strange, mysterious darkness settled upon the land of, of Palestine. Uh, the sun no longer shone. Just deep, black darkness for three hours. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, out of that darkness, our Lord cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, the words that you find in this, in this text. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the great question that governs this psalm. Here is one who never failed to please his father. He never sinned. 
He was assailed and assaulted by all the temptations that you and I experience, but he never sinned. He's without sin, the New Testament tells us. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He was fully capable of sinning, I believe, but by dependence upon the Father, he was able to live an impeccable, sinless life. Here's one of whom the Father said when he began his ministry, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He never displeased his Father. And now he's facing the abandonment of the one that more than anyone else in the world he longed to please. God turned his back on his son and walked away. And we're left with a question, why? It's a question that our Lord uttered. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Despite the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, in the darkness, he cried out, and I am not, not silent. And we just have to wrestle with that question. Why would God abandon the only truly good man who ever lived? And yet he did. He forsook it. He was left all alone. He was left with this terrible question and the anguish and and the, the sense of frustration, failure, futility of the father having turned his, uh, his back on him. In verses 3 through 5, he rehearses in his mind the, the way God dealt with other faithful men and women throughout uh, history. You, he says, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That is, we, we exalt you, we worship you, we, we lift you up in our praises. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Hannah, Rebekah, Isaiah, David himself, and others in the Old Testament went through difficult times and they rolled the weight of their anxiety on the Lord and, and he delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. You saved them, Jesus cries out. Why not me? Why am I being treated differently? I cry out for salvation. And there's no deliverance. I'm abandoned. In contrast to them, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he, since he delights in him. This is descriptive of, of those who stood at, at the foot of the cross. These are the very words that they used when they uh, hurled insults at him and, and mocked him. Uh, Matthew, in uh, Reporting their scoffing puts it like this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the laws, the teacher of the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, 
if he wants him, you see. It's almost an exact quotation from this psalm. It would be impossible for the disciples or for the Lord to contrive, contrive this uh, response on the part of, of the crowd. These were the very people that uh, had greeted the Lord with, with such, uh, such joy just a few days before when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they laid palm leaves on the, the streets before him and they, they worshipped him as their king, and now they turned against him and they mocked him and they hurled insults at him. We think of our Lord as, as an iron man, stoic. None of this would touch him, but when, you, when you, you see the cry of his heart, you understand how deeply he was touched by their, uh, by their scorn. Verses 9 through 10 express, uh, through 11 express something more of his Confusion. He had been faithful to God from the very beginning. He has a difficult time understanding why the Lord, why his father was not now faithful to him. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You've been my God. Do not be far from me now, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. We never think of our Lord as, as lonely, feeling forsaken. But at, at this moment, he felt intensely, felt fully the emotions that you and I feel when, when we're abandoned. His family and his, his friends had uh, forsaken him, fled. His disciples, those that he had touched and taught and healed and loved and cared for. They had, they had all fled, and he was left only with a crowd of, of the, the scornful, those that were, were mocking him. There's no one to help. And then the view from the cross in verses 12 and 13. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against him as he looked down from the cross on that ravening, roaring, Mob at the foot of the cross, the, the, the shouts, the, the curses, the grumbling, uh, the, the noise of that crowd that had come to ridicule him and, and mock him and, and cast his words uh, into, into his face. He describes them as, as wild animals, tearing at his flesh, tearing at his, at his heart. See. These were the people that he, that he cared for. Describes them as insensible, bestial, bulls, strong bulls of, of Bashan. And then in verses 14 and 15, something of the physical sensations of, a sensation of the cross. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of, out of joint. For six hours he had hung, suspended on his, on his hands. Very difficult to, to breathe in that position. He was exhausted, extremely weary feeling uh, desperate and uh, describes his heart as turning to wax and melting uh, away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the, in the dust of death. He was uh, terribly dehydrated and experiencing a, a ravenous thirst. That's why at the end of this, uh, of this ordeal, after six hours, in which he had refused uh, uh, 
anything to drink, he cried out, I, I thirst, I thirst. And they put a little piece of hyssop on a spear and, and uh, dipped it in vinegar and pressed it uh, to, his, to his lips. The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Again, a reference to the crowd that surrounded the cross. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Isn't that remarkable? A thousand years before the crucifixion, long before the Roman concept of of crucifixion, which was a particularly uh, painful and uh, really a unique form of, of execution, which had not been practiced before. The Assyrians and Babylonians knew a form of crucifixion. But it was dissimilar to the Roman form in which they they nailed their hands and their, their feet to a, a cross of, of wood. And here, a thousand years before the event, David, who is a prophet, puts these words in our Lord's mouth. They pierced my hands and, and my feet. There have been attempts over the years to try to change the text because the word to choose for piercing here is a is an unusual word. It only occurs here. It doesn't occur anyplace else in the Old Testament. And you may have seen translations in which uh, this text is changed, but there is a, a very early Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that I've referred to uh, several times. Some 200 years before our Lord was crucified, this translation was in current use. And when they came to this section, Though they did not understand the significance of the word, they understood what the word meant. And they translated it. They have pierced my hands and my feet. There's no question about their translation. It would be utterly unbiased because it took place before the event. So long before anyone understood the concept of Roman crucifixion, that particularly torturous form of execution, David predicts, David puts these words in the sufferer's mouth, they have, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Our Lord was stripped naked and exposed to the, to, to the eyes of, of the crowd that surrounded the cross. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, why would David put that statement in his, in his poem? only because he was led to do so by the Spirit of God, because it describes accurately what actually happened. The passage that was read earlier in Matthew uh, describes the actual event. The clothing of executed criminals was one of the perquisites of Roman soldiers. They were permitted to strip the uh, those that they crucified and take all of their possessions. And as you know, our Lord had a robe that was woven from top to bottom without a seam, and they didn't want to tear it, and so they they cast lots for it. You get this vivid picture of a group of hard, tough old Roman soldiers rolling out their blankets and shooting a game of craps at the foot of the cross where our Lord was suffering and dying for them. They did not see the significance. Utterly indifferent to what was going on on that cross above them. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but Madonna often wears a dangling earring with a cross on it. And when I see that, I often think of that that dear woman, so far from God in both her lifestyle and her thoughts, wearing on her ear the symbol of the Savior who died for her 
totally indifferent she is, I assume, to the good news that the Lord died for her. And that's, that's what was happening that day. They were casting lots for the Lord's clothes, not understanding the significance of uh, the event that was taking place before their eyes. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And then in verses 19 through 21, the final prayer of the suffering, uh, of the sufferer. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen. This is typical oriental imagery. We've talked about their tendency to use these grandiose expressions as symbols to describe the reality of certain events. Here the Lord is simply describing those that are standing at the foot of the cross who are responsible for his, for his death. And he prays, rescue me from the mouth of the lions and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is his prayer. And then he hung there. And he hung there, and he hung there, and he died. And the Father did not rescue him from the cross. Now I ask you why? Why? The Father could have sent 10,000 legions of angels to deliver the Lord. He did not have to go through the indignities of the trial and the crucifixion. He did not have to endure the physical pain and the emotional, emotional suffering of that event. Why did the Father forsake him? That's the great question of this psalm. Why, he asks, why have you forsaken me? Well, in effect, he answers his prayer because in verse 3, he says, you're holy. You're holy. You see, God cannot stand in the presence of sin. He's holy. He cannot abide sin. can't endure it. And when his son became sin for us, he had to turn his back on his son and walk away from him. That's why our Lord was forsaken. It's because he himself became sin, the very thing that the father hated. Isaiah puts it like this. He took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. The people at the foot of the cross thought Jesus was dying for his own sins because he was guilty of sedition, claimed to be the king of the Jews, claimed to be the son of God, which is blasphemy. He was dying for his sin, but in, in fact he was dying for ours. We consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, for hundreds of years, whenever a, a, the head of a Jewish household came to the tabernacle or the temple to worship, he would bring a small animal, a lamb if he could afford it, or a bullock, or a smaller animal if it was a poverty-stricken family, and he would 
place his hands on the head of that animal, lean all of his weight on the animal and confess his sins, and then that animal would be slain. A life was given up for a life. What actually happened in symbol in front of the tabernacle of the temple happened on the cross. A life was given up for an infinite number of lives. As Paul puts it, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a deal we got. All of our sin is placed on him. All of his righteousness as a result is given to us. And when all of that sin was laid on him, our Lord became a fornicator, an adulterer, a liar, a cheat, a murderer, a gossip, a prideful, arrogant, sinful man. And he was forsaken. And he felt that to the core of his being. It's my opinion, though I know some disagree, that our Lord actually went to hell. He did not go halfway in paying the price for sin. He not only bore sin, he bore the consequences of sin. But for a moment of time, he experienced the eternal abandonment of God. Peter seems to allude to that fact when he says, he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. What I believe he meant is, is this, he was put to death in the flesh, he was put to death in the spirit. He was spiritually separated from God. He was made alive in the spirit. He was made alive in the flesh. He went all the way in paying the price for our sin. But as Psalm 16 tells us, the passage that we're going to be talking about uh, with regard to the resurrection next week, God did not abandon his Holy One to Sheol. Didn't permit him to dwell there. He raised him from the dead. Now, there's an interesting uh, statement in the text. If you have a New American Standard, uh, pardon me, a New International Standard, and you look at the footnote at the bottom, there's a notation um, pended to the second line of verse 21, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen you have heard. Now, if this were an English manuscript, of the, the, the text would look like this. The, the first line of verse 21, Rescue me from the mouth of the lions, from the horns of the wild oxen, which is a, a parallel statement. This is a form of Hebrew parallelism. And then you'd see three little dots, dot, dot, dot. And off to the side of the page, separated from the rest of the text, you would read, He is hurt. He is hurt. That's the turning point in the psalm. That our Lord offered up cries, Hebrews says, loud cries and prayer in the garden. Save me, Father. Hebrews says he was hurt for his piety, for his godliness. He had to go all the way through the cross. He had to endure the, the entire ordeal because it was necessary for one to give up his life for all. But the Father didn't abandon him to Sheol. He heard him. And this is the turning point. You have heard. He was put to death for our sins. He was raised for our justification. This was uh, the sign that God fully approved of what the Son had done and the sacrifice had been accepted. He was heard for his piety. The results of the resurrection follow. 
entails the, the, the calling out of a vast number of, of people. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, if that those two lines ring a bell, it's because they're quoted in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is our brother, that he's uh, not like the gods that came down off of Mount Olympus, who only appeared to be human. He was fully human. And uh, one sign of that, the writer of Hebrews says, is that the Lord himself, and he puts these words right in Jesus' mouth, said, I'll declare your name to my brothers. The point being that we are his brothers. He's our older brother. And we're in the family. And what uh, the psalmist is telling uh, us uh, uh, prophetically is that as a result of the father having heard the son and as a result of the resurrection, he's now bringing together a vast number of, of people from every tribe and every nation and, and every tongue. He did not, he, he went to the cross, as one of the old saints put it, that he might not have to dwell on Mount Zion alone. Do you understand that had he not gone to the cross, he would have been the only one, the only individual who endured. Everyone else would have perished and been banished. He was the, he was the spotless, sinless, perfect son of God. He had earned the right to live forever in God's presence. But he would have been all alone. He did not want to dwell on Mount Zion alone. It's one of the motives that drove him to the cross because he knew as a result there would be a vast number of brothers and sisters, an enormous family that would be gathered around around the Father whose fellowship he would share. It's one of the marvels of, of the gospel, of the good news, that he not only did what he did for for uh, for us, he did it for himself because he longed for us, he wanted us. More than anything else, he wanted to share life forever with us. And now as a result of the resurrection, he can declare his name to his brothers in the midst of a vast congregation. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him. That's us. We're the spiritual descendants of Jacob, the seed of, of Abraham. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He was answered. He was heard. And he was raised from the dead. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, we worship him. From you comes my praise to the great in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. In other words, now Jesus can do what he promised to do. Our Lord promised during the days of, of his flesh that uh, he would give us food that would satisfy us. He would give us drink that uh, which uh, if we took it in, we'd, we'd never experience thirst again. Remember the words to the woman at the well and his words to the Pharisees in John 6. The strange words that were... Not understood. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life indeed. And and uh, I am the bread of, of that came down from heaven, which if you eat, you will live forever. All of those statements speak to the the longings of our hearts. 
See, the real issue in life, the fundamental thought that, that, we, that we think about all the time is, what about God? What about God? Does he love me? Does he care about me? What can I do about the sin that separates me, about the guilt of my past? What's the answer to death? Those are the cosmic questions. Those are the questions that, that must be answered for life to have, to have meaning and purpose. And uh, our Lord promised during the days of his flesh and his teaching ministry that he would satisfy us, that he would take care of our sin, that he would deal with the issue of guilt, that if we ate and drank of him, we would live forever. Listen to these words. The poor, 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. It's not by accident that Psalm 23 follows, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the one who fully satisfies all those clamant needs and desires, the hungers and yearnings of our hearts. When we eat and drink of him, we're satisfied. See, he could only fulfill that vow because the Father raised him from the dead. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live Forever. The cross was the death of God, but it was the life of the human race. It was the means by which we can live forever. And then he describes the effect of the message as it goes out to every tongue, and every language, every, every tribe, every nation. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Here's this boundless kingdom without space or throughout space and time. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Unborn generations will hear. That's us guys. We're the recipients of that message. The, the good news of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, the satisfaction that was achieved through that, uh, those momentous events has been announced to every generation. The apostles announced it to their generation, that generation to the next. The good news was passed on like an Olympic torch from one generation to the next until one day you, you heard it. That God had been satisfied in Jesus. That you did not have to pay for your sins. That the guilt of the past had been assuaged. That there's power to live a life that's pleasing to God. And that the problem of death that has haunted the human race from the very beginning has been once for all solved. That's the good news. Those are the, those are the, that's, that's the word that speaks to those great issues and questions that we raise in in our hearts, and that's been passed on from one generation to the next until, as he puts it, future generations have been told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. He has done it. Hebrew is just one word, done it, which uh, is an echo, I believe, or perhaps our Lord's words from the cross are, an echo of this uh, this one word in, in Psalm 22, when after the darkness had descended and after he had cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Then he said, I thirst that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And uh, they, they gave him a drink of the vinegar. And then we're told that he cried out in a loud voice, one word in Greek, to telestai, finished, done, nothing more to do. And he bowed his head and died. It wasn't the cross that killed him. He could have hung there forever. But he rendered up his, his spirit because the deed was done. Our job now is just to enter into grace. That, that's all we can do. That's our task. And those of us that have entered into it to keep entering into more of it. To keep knowing that there's nothing we can do because it's all been done. To know that you don't have to, to be doing better in order to continue to be loved by God. You don't have to change or grow or obey or do anything to be loved by God. He already loves you more than you'll ever know. He will change you in time. He will move our hearts toward obedience. But we need to understand that the deed has been done. That when you fall flat on your face, you're okay. You've been forgiven. You can live with that blessed assurance that you've been reconciled to God. You get shocked and horrified when you when you fail. There's no reason to do so. Because that sin was one of the sins that our Lord perished for on the cross. That's how much he loved you. And even today, he would still spill his blood for you. Even if you were the only person on the face of the earth, he would still die for you today. That's how much he loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Our, our task is simply to enter into the finished work Nothing more that any of us can do. There is not one act of obedience that will add anything to our salvation. It's a free gift. All we have to do is receive it. Let's pray. If you've never received that gift, I I want you to understand that it's, um, it's being offered to you this morning. It doesn't make any difference what your past has been. What you've done, what you've thought, what you've said, what you've experienced, our Lord stands offering that that gift. All you have to do is take it. All you have to do is thank him for the sacrifice that he made. It's finished. The work is done. And if you have never received that gift, would you pray along with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I accept what you've done for myself. I make it my own. I believe that what was done was done for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now help me, Lord, to comprehend the extent of your grace, to understand the full measure of that gift, and to respond to you in small measure with the love, the incredible love that you have for me. Thank you for accepting my prayer to understand the enormity of the sacrifice, the tremendous cost to you of my sin. And may we worship you as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.